Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 97. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is PD Mangan of Rogue Health and Fitness. So this is a special about diet. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's really good to be here. Glad glad I was able to connect with you. It's an absolute pleasure. So tell us a bit about yourself and, and how you got to your fitness goals. Uh, okay. Uh, it's it's uh, a relatively interesting story and, and maybe kind of longish. So feel free to stop me or, or interject any time you want. Um, We're sitting comfortably. It's, it's currently the 4th of March. So let's go for it. <laughs> I um, was born in 1955, and so when I was about 10 years old, that would be 1965, that was the peak of the heart disease epidemic. So heart disease rose greatly from the the beginning of the 20th century. It was practically zero heart attacks. They were all but unknown at the beginning of the 20th century, till 1965 at the peak, this was the era of men, middle-aged men dropping dead in their tracks. And it was, uh, considered practically a national emergency. So, um, I'm sorry, just, just on that point, what, I mean, unless, sorry to interrupt if this is a point you were just going to make, what was the driver for that? Was that, was that a, a combination of nutrition? Uh, was it nutritional based or was it lifestyle based? Yeah, that that's a very good question, and that is debated, um, you know, with no firm answers. But in my opinion, um, uh, so for example, the obvious one is cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Um, at at again at the beginning of the twentieth century, the you know per capita uh, cigarette per consumption in the United States was you know something like forty a year, and um, that and that's because. They, you know, they were home rolled cigarettes and then, um, manufacture, you know, machine manufacturing got into, into gear and it was, and then advertising, of course, it became more socially acceptable. And then, so by 1965, um, per capita consumption of cigarettes was nearly 5,000 a year. Uh, so that, that's a really obvious one. Um, in 1910, Crisco was introduced. So we had the trans fats. Uh, and so in my opinion, that's a factor too. um, sugar consumption went way up during that period of time. So there are several factors also, you know, people became more sedentary, uh, as far as, um, employment moved largely away from agriculture and manual labor to more sedentary work. So there's, you know, there's all kinds of things involved. And, um, you know, like I said, there's debate about what factors were most important and so on. But in my opinion, those, those, uh, four, I think that I named there are all important. Yep. Uh, my father was a physician and he got heart disease. So, uh, it, he, he eventually lived a long life, but 
when he was around 50 years old, he got heart disease and he was, um, he struggled with it. I mean, he was taking medication for it, had chest pains regularly and so on. And I could see how it affected him both physically and psychologically. And that was, uh, something that impressed me. In other words, uh, impressed me negatively that I did not ever want that to happen to me. So that was maybe my earliest uh, impetus towards health and fitness. And then later I got interested in it um, when I, like I said, when I was 19 or 20. And I followed the standard prescriptions that you, you know, you still read and hear about I started running, for example, that, that was maybe my first thing in the 1970s when I was around that age, the running craze got going. So people got interested in exercise and running was a, was a big thing. And I started doing it and I liked it. I have never been athletic in that sense, never played a sport or anything. So I definitely needed something to keep me fit. And, and so it, it did. And I kept running and eventually I was running fairly long distances. I have run a couple of marathons in my life when I was in my forties and, you know, typically I was running every day on weekends. I might run, you know, a 10 mile, 10 miles just, you know, as, as a exercise, that sort of thing. And also along the way with the standard advice that, that you read about, uh, I became a vegetarian and eventually a vegan because everywhere you turned, you heard that, uh, saturated fat and cholesterol caused heart disease. And since this was, uh, uppermost in my mind, then I decided that would be the way to go. And so that, that, that's what I did. I was a vegetarian for some time and running and so on. And I did okay for a while. And then when I was in my, uh, forties, early forties, I suddenly became pretty suddenly became no longer able to run. I had a complete lack of energy. And after a little, after a short while, I sought doctors, a doctor's help because I thought this, this is not normal. At first I thought maybe I had a a cold or a sore throat or something. And I just felt run down, but then I never got over it. This led to basically, uh, an 11 year long odyssey through the healthcare system. If you want to call it that basically seeing a bunch of different doctors trying to get some answers. I, I could not get any answers. Nobody was able to do anything for me. My blood tests and, and, you know, basically everything else was normal. So they, you know, they couldn't point, point to any abnormalities that, that I had a, you know, a distinct illness. Eventually I got a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. And so it was, it was pretty bad news. I, I, of course, by this time I could no longer run. I didn't have the energy. I tr tried to do some walking every day just so I wouldn't be completely sedentary. So anyway, at some point I decided, look, if, if I'm going to be like this the rest of my life, I, I really, at some point had resigned myself to, to having chronic fatigue syndrome the rest of my life. 
And I thought that since I, I real came to the realization that the doctors were not going to be able to help me. Um, and so that if I wanted to get better, I had to figure it out for myself or try to somehow. So I have a background in, I have a science background. I have a bachelor's degree in microbiology and I have worked in the field for my adult life. So I, you know, I was fairly comfortable with getting involved in the, in the science and, and started reading, you know, I, I could understand most of the biochemistry and physiology and so on. I did. And I started finding out a few things. One of the, as I recall, one of the first things that I came across, not really of a scientific nature, but doing some reading online was some people suggesting that being a vegan or vegetarian was not the best thing for your health. And I was rather surprised to tell you the truth. I thought, is, is, is that really right? I mean, I've been told all along that this is the best way to be healthy. I, I mean, I had never delved into it really deeply, but I had read, uh, read about it. I'd read doctors recommending it and talking about it and how it was so great and so on. Eventually after before too long, um, I, and more reading and studying, I had come to the conclusion that maybe being a, a vegan was no longer in my best interest. It was too risky. Um, that maybe if it wasn't actively harmful, it was not helping me any and contributing to my illness. So I stopped at that time. I was reading a lot about what is known as the paleo diet. And I jumped right into that. And I, before too long, I started feeling a little better. And when I did start feeling a little better, I had always thought that I had wanted to go back into doing weightlifting, which I had done at a couple of different points in my life. Um, so I, I did, I, I picked up, uh, an old barbell that I had stowed underneath my bed and started working out with it. And it was very difficult. Um, I, but I kept at it. And after about a month, I decided that I needed heavier weights. So I went and went to the local gym and I joined and, um, I never looked back in the first, first year of working out at the gym, I gained about how much did I gain? 35 pounds of muscle, mostly muscle. And so then going, going back a little bit, I, uh, when I had been doing my, my studying and research about chronic fatigue and vegetarianism and health in general, I, I had thought to myself, well, if, if I ever figure this out, I'm going to have to write a book about it. And so then at some point, you know, when I was feeling a lot better, I thought, hey, well, I guess I did figure it out. So I'm going to write a book. So I wrote a short book called Smash Chronic Fatigue and put it up on Amazon. And after I had done that, I thought, well, what now? So I, I just kept kept writing and started up my website and wrote some more books and now I'm on Twitter and all this kind of thing. So I guess that takes us up to the present day. What What do you think it was about vegetarianism that that didn't do the trick for you? What What do you think it you know from a scientific perspective? What was missing? Right. So 
I think, uh, you know, we've got to distinguish between veganism and vegetarianism. Right. So, um, vegetarianism, in my opinion, if done properly can be reasonably pretty good as far as health goes. Uh, in in my opinion, it is extremely difficult, if not impossible, for veganism to 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 be healthy for somebody. So, what specifically? You know, there are all kinds of things uh, that that a vegan diet lacks, uh, and and also that has that that uh, a, a good omnivorous or carnivorous diet. Uh, has or or doesn't have is is one of those things protein a protein is one of them for sure um that's very important the the recommended daily allowance for protein in the united states seems to be understated so there are new new methods that they have of looking at this have found um significantly higher requirements for good health so yes i think it, yeah, absolutely. I think protein is one of them. Mo- most, probably most people, and I'm not just talking about vegans or vegetarians here, but well, anyway, a lot of people in this country are not getting enough protein. If I was able to circle back to your the point where you were feeling ill and you were on the vegan diet, clearly the doctors must have taken your blood and had a look at it and did it not show deficiencies or were they just not able to test for those deficiencies at that time? Well, right. So most of what you would call deficiencies, like say vitamin deficiencies and so on, um, are, you know, not routinely done. And, and I may really not have had them anyway. I might have, may have been sufficient in most of those, those kinds of things. Let me, let me uh, explain one thing about these lab values. So lab laboratory values that the when you get a lab test done, you get a result and it comes with a normal range. So the laboratory will supply you with a normal range. So your your lab test value will fall either within or without that normal range. And so where does the normal range come from? It comes from 95 percent of ostensibly healthy people. Take a look around you. And look at the, look at everybody walking around. If if somebody is ambulatory, they're generally ostensibly healthy enough that you could put their their value on a lab test into you know as an input into your normal range. So it's, sorry to interrupt. Is, are, you, is, are you essentially saying the range is just huge? It the range the range is huge. More more importantly, what I'm saying is that. Because a lab value falls in there, it doesn't mean you're healthy. Because yeah. it, pe- people are not healthy. Yeah. Most people are not healthy. I mean, in the United States, almost ninety percent of people have some kind of metabolic abnormality. They're either overweight or obese, skinny fat, or have some other metabolic problem in, indicative of, you know, similar similar to being overweight. Uh, at, the, at the risk, at the risk of sounding facetious, I heard a, a line the other day that I hadn't heard before, which is the average person on the planet has one testicle and one breast. So there's a there's a, there's a limit to statistical statistical relevance. <laughs> right, right. So anyway, I I hope I'm not making 
too technical a point here, but the the fact that you have you you go get blood tests and they come back normal, yeah, doesn't necessarily doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. Yeah, but yeah, I, that that's it's great to highlight that. I find that fascinating actually. Um, but it, but specifically for you, you were in you had a debilitating illness, and if something was skirting the the sort of uh, the 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 boundaries of a level. Then it, and they knew that your diet was vegan. Could they not have said, "Well, hang on a minute. What what, what are you eating?" And I think this whatever it might be looks a bit low. And also uh, recommend like supplements, your, like your iron levels, perhaps, or yeah. something. Um, right. You know, we think you should take more more iron and and test. I don't know something like thyroid. I'm not a, not a doctor. I have no idea whether that would have anything to do with it. But it seems like th- th- this was a different. This was different than a a regular checkup. You weren't. Your 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 quality of lifestyle was was impaired, you know, significantly for a man of of your age. It should not have been like that. A, a, absolutely. So, uh, what one uh, expression you just used there, debilitating illness. So yes, it was certainly debilitating to me. It it definitely harmed my quality of life. But I suspect your average doctor doesn't see it that way. And you know, I mean, because to them, a debilitating illness is hospitalization or, you know, or, okay, you got to come back and see me next week and you got to take all these meds or, you know, something like that. Cardiovascular disease, diabetes, arthritis. Those are, those are what doctors think are debilitating. Mm -hmm. Um, and like I say, certainly it was to me, but I don't know if you're aware, but there's a significant uh, aspect of the literature behind chronic fatigue where they're basically accusing people of malingering. So to, you know, to many doctors, it's not a debilitating illness. Wow. They, they, they say, well, you know, I can't find anything wrong with you. Just like you're saying with the lab results, I can't find anything wrong with you. You know, your heart's good, your lungs good, whatever. Uh, I don't know. I mean, basically, I heard this so many times I that, you know, doctors would basically sort of give up or or I would realize it was no point in seeing this particular doctor anymore. I would try to find somebody else. I eventually found a caring doctor who was willing to keep going as long as I was willing to come back. Um, but the vast majority were not like this. And then another thing you touched on there, um, nobody ever asked what I ate. So wow. it, it's just it's just not an issue for, for most of them. Um, you know, uh, and I believe this last doctor that I'd mentioned who, who I eventually saw for quite some time, I believe I told him, but he seemed not to care. And, and it really, after I got better, I, I recall being in that doctor's office so many times he was Although he was uh, had an MD degree, so he was uh, mainstream to that extent. He was quite an alternative practitioner. So he and I was in Northern California. So you know, you, you can c- kind of picture the, the patients in his office, right? Lots of very, le- le- for lack of a better word, hippie types. And I thought to myself, I wonder how many of his patients were vegans or vegetarians. Mm. I'll bet a, I'll bet a whole lot of them. Um, so, but it it just wasn't considered an issue. Eventually, I did find an abnormal lab result, and you know it's funny you ask that because that that is what led me to start in on the research because 
even though I had worked in clinical laboratories all my life, I really had never heard of this particular test. My somewhat alternative doctor had ordered it. It came back abnormal, very abnormal. And I thought, what is this? So I started I started looking into it, and that's one thing led to another. That that was really the start. What was that test? What was it called? It was called glutathione. Right. So glutathione is the most important internal antioxidant that we have, the most abundant. It's critical uh, for optimal functioning. And um, if you have low levels, that indicates that you have oxid, what's called oxidative stress. It means that your your body is, um, you, you've probably heard of free radicals. So, yes. you know, you normally produce a lot of these and your body is supposed to be able to control them, to keep them at, uh, at an optimal level. If you have oxidative stress, that indicates that your body is not doing that. And so the, the, low glutathione and the ratio of oxidized to reduced glutathione. Again, I don't know if I'm getting too technical for you here, no, but please, please that's do what, because it's, it's, uh, you know, it may be something that somebody needs to, to tell their doctor in the future, having listened to this. So anything, anything technical is fine. It, okay. Okay, great. Um, anyway, that's what it was. And, um, also of interest, you know, going back to something you had said a few minutes back. So, Looking, I started looking up glutathione. You know, what's this all about? And uh, glutathione is a small peptide. It's made from three amino acids. And where do we get amino acids in our diet from? We get them from protein. Protein is composed of amino acids. So it immediately occurred to me that something was going on that well, gee, maybe I'm not getting enough protein. Um, and that, you know, that could very well be, obviously I'm what they call N equals one. It's just me going through this experience and, and a lot of things, there are always a lot of things that differ between individuals and differed in what I did and so on. But I think that's a reasonable interpretation. There is a study out there that found that, vegans had lower glutathione levels. And so that, that indicates a higher level of oxidative stress that could have been, you know, highly related to my chronic fatigue. Before that, we're talking about the, the sensitivities of, of, of data and uh, guide guidelines. The one that interests me just, uh, just in passing is I would, uh, do you know, do, do you have um, a recommended a uh, guideline for, let's say, alcohol consumption in the U.S. Yes, there are recommendations because we because we have them here, and I think the I'm not sure we have the same that our units are the same as your units, but we have a, this recommendation not to drink more than uh, 14 units a week. And I heard, and I think I'm right in this. I, I heard that when when they actually asked the people who you know came up with these guide this guide and said, "Where do you get that 14 units figure from?" They said, "Oh, we just plucked it out of the air." You know, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's nothing behind it. It's just, I mean, I appreciate it. in other, other areas, it, it surely there is some, has to be some scientific substance to it, but maybe not as much as we might have thought. But certainly in this area, you, you're given this guidance, but there's, there's, there's no science behind it whatsoever. It's just a bunch of people saying, oh, that feels like about right. That seems, you know, that seems, that seems plausible and sensible and safe. Which may, it may or it may not be, but it's got, it's got no science behind it. 
this this is a this is a you know a fascinating topic about alcohol, and I don't I don't know if I, I I'll I'll just tell you a little bit because I I've I've looked into this a lot. So, I mean, this is this is clearly a, to- a topic that is close to my heart. <laughs> Tim likes a drink, okay? <laughs> right. Well, yeah, for sure. And so you know, numerous, and I'm talking about dozens, scores, maybe even hundreds of studies have found that moderate drinking is associated with lower death rates and better health. And this is not really unknown, but health authorities do not like to publicize it. And so what, you know, depending on which studies you're looking at and so on, you know, generally, this is a phenomenon known as hormesis in which low doses of a stress or toxin result in better health and it's fundamental to biology. There are so many types of hormesis. Exercise is really the best known example of hormesis. You put a stress on your body and your body becomes healthier. Right. So th- th- this phenomenon of hormesis has a J curve, which means that at low doses, the risk of whatever you're looking at, mortality, cardiovascular disease, whatever drops. And then as the dose increases, it goes back up again. So so what so what you what you want is a mild stressor. Right, exactly. Uh in the case of alcohol for men, approximately a couple of drinks a day is the sweet spot for the lowest dose the the, the lowest mortality rate. Mm. In other words, men who drink two drinks a day, approximately one to two drinks a day, I think something in there have about something like a 20% lower death rate than someone who does not drink at all. Right. Where's that, uh, where's that from? Is that from a study or? The, these are mostly epidemiological studies. In other words, they've just looked at groups of people, found out how much they drank, followed them for a number of years, see who died or see who you know, got heart disease and tabulate that, all that. There, there are a lot of confounders because different socioeconomic classes drink at different levels, for example, and you know higher income people uh, tend to drink more, and they also tend to be healthier, more intelligent, etc., have better health behaviors. So there are lots of confounders, and, and there have been randomized controlled studies, which, when they take a group of people, split them up into a couple of different groups assign one to drinking and assign the other to uh, drinking water or something like that. And, you know, these, these uh, are short-term studies. They're, they're considered the whole, the whole alcohol thing is so fraught with cultural norms and ethical concerns and so on. But in any case, these randomized controlled studies, you know, found that when, you know, they drank one to two drinks a day that, their HDL cholesterol went up, which is good. Their insulin sensitivity went up, which is good. And triglycerides went down, which is good. So it all, you know, it points to being a real phenomenon, not just an association. Just to get back to your point about, so, you know, in your country, they recommend a certain standard of drinking. They, they just, in the United States, you you just can hardly say this sort of thing. You can hard you know if you say that yeah, moderate drinking is good for you. 
You get you get you get death threats. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's never been that severe for me. It's just on Twitter, and many people object strongly to saying anything like that. Very much so. It, the United States, more more so than the UK, has uh, you know there's a there's a strain of Puritanism, uh, even though the you know the actual Puritans came from your country, but. Well, we, we just offloaded all the guys that we couldn't stand anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but there, there, is, there is that strain. There's lots of um, uh, religious groups that are strongly opposed to drinking. And, um, you know, so it's, it's – uh, it, this, this thing about alcohol is very difficult to dis- discuss in public. There, you know, there are some legitimate concerns that, you know, different people have different propensities – to becoming addicted to alcohol but to, to, to bring to bring this back to the broader kind of uh n- nutritional debate it, we're not likely well I'm, I'm maybe putting words in your mouth but we're not likely to come around to the conclusion that probably moderation in all things is going to be for the best as opposed to eliminating certain things entirely i i i am i am for eliminating certain things entirely right. um so yeah so i i i would disagree about moderation in all things there. Okay. So what's the what's on the naughty list, as it were? I, I won't say I, but there's a lot of evidence that points to the real culprit in nutrition, in in causing chronic disease and obesity and so on, are what are known in the technical lingo as ultra-processed foods. Yeah. yeah. The reason why they're called ultra processed is because all foods are pretty much processed in some way or other. I mean, if you eat a steak, it's, it has to be cut and cooked and so on. So that is a form of processing. Um, but ultra processed foods have refined ingredients. They're, they're, you can think of them as being the kind of foods that are made in a factory that are put into colorful bags and boxes with brand names on them. Or, or soft drinks, that there's another category of them. They are basically the foods that are sold by the biggest food companies in the world, the top three of which are Nestle, Coca-Cola, and Pepsi-Cola. Uh, and people eat an incredible amount of them. Is it, sorry to interrupt, uh, Dennis, is it plausible that the, the rise of ultra-processed foods is consistent with that timing about you know uh, heart disease in the 50s could that be a factor it, it could be but i think that but presu- presumably it's been one way traffic for the last you know 50 plus years absolutely what what they are really linked with for you know more more solidly is the rise of obesity right so you know obesity was a a, a small problem up to the 1970s and by 1980 it just started rising and it has not stopped and uh so so certainly the food manufacturers ran with this idea of low fat low saturated fat and so on and here's here's something that i think people don't appreciate very much is that vegan vegan foods are in, in the form of ultra-processed foods are very profitable. So we've, we've seen, you know, just recently, like in the last couple of years, a, a sort of organized 
campaign for veganism. There's the Eat Lancet group, and there's this. There's a lot of um, you know a, uh, agitation for, I guess, for lack of a better word, that oh, we've got to all become vegan because of global warming and this kind of thing. And you know, surprisingly, or not maybe not so surprisingly, the big food companies just love this. If you take, let's say, white flour and sugar and vegetable oils, which are better termed industrial seed oils. I don't know how, how much you've followed me to know that, and we can certainly talk about that, but these are all ultra cheap ingredients mm. and you can put them together in a tasty way with some other ingredients, of course, put a, put a, put them in a box with a brand name on it. And you, you've got massive profit there. Whereas things like meat, well, meat and cheese, eggs, these these are sold by local producers for the most part. They're not very profitable. Uh, they don't. They're not very susceptible to having a brand name put on them. For the most part, they they spoil. They uh, cannot be uh, put into standard shapes and sizes like ultra processed food can be. So. This, this kind of food is very profitable. That's, um, and that's an amazing comment. You can't put a brand on it. I'd never thought of that. And that, right. that now that makes perfect sense. It makes perfect right. sense as to why yeah. they'd want to shift people over to these other products. Now, some of that shift that you, you were mentioning came from, well, we, we, many people are now watching documentaries on Netflix. Netflix is a very popular platform as, as well as some of the others. And... Wow. Personally, I love to watch documentaries to try and find out the truth about things. And we also have a, uh, a doctor here in the UK um, called Dr. Michael Mosley, who's done a series of, yeah. of, of programs that I think have been very helpful with regard to people understanding a bit more about health and what you were saying about, for example, say vegetable oil and, and against fat. Um, he, he actually talked about that and he, he's also... Um, advocated he's probably most famous for the fast diet um which is yes. a, a diet of fasting and and uh, the, the the health benefits and he had a, had a similar story in the sense that his father was was ill and he was basically on the road to getting diabetes even though he didn't look particularly uh, overweight but inside he had a lot of fat in, in around his organs and he, right. he it started off with him fasting and you know that so that itself made a lot of sense but then there's other areas that he's gone into that I've that kind of kind of ring true for what you've you've just said but the main thing that's really splashed and got everybody talking and I know people who've gone completely vegan because of it is the game changers documentary now I'm not sure if Tim's seen it I'm not sure if you've seen it but it's um certainly a very well produced documentary with some household names behind it You've got Arnold Schwarzenegger on it. It was uh, produced by James Cameron and uh, produces extremely powerful arguments for a plant-based diet. And whilst it may not necessarily have been the intention of the filmmakers to say that, you know, you shouldn't eat any meat or, you, you know, you shouldn't eat any animal products, that's certainly anecdotally what, people I know are, are actually doing they have gone you know I know people have gone completely vegan just on the basis of that documentary now I'd say you can't you should never just do that you've always got to do what you've just done 
Dennis, and you've got to do your own research. And that applies to markets. It applies to everything. And I I didn't like the way that particular documentary felt like an advert. It came across to me too much like an advert rather than trying to find the truth. But having said that, the people that have gone against the documentary, there was a guy called Chris Kressler, who you very kindly yes. put me on to. And this is actually why we're talking today. You know, you're very, very helpful. And I, you know, I want to say thank you again for being so polite to a random person who, who you didn't know. Um, <laughs> oh, no, not at all. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, um, and so I, I looked at Chris Kressler's uh, website and I, and I was, I've been telling our listeners who've been following this kind of story from the game changes to what Chris Kressler said to then the Joe Rogan podcast where you had uh, James Wilkes, who's not only the producer, but also the um, who's sort of one of the main protagonists in the documentary. He was an MMA fighter who became ill and his journey was that he wanted to try and recover quickly. And he discovered that the gladiator's ate a predominantly plant-based diet and it kind of went on from there and so there's some real and Arnold Schwarzenegger's in it saying he he prefers to eat plant-based food uh it tastes better and he feels better and having eaten meat all his life that's a shocking thing for somebody to say I mean that alone I'm sure would would convert a lot of people to to a plant-based diet and to stop eating meat so when Chris Kressler and James Wilkes were on the Joe Rogan podcast it wasn't a great outcome for Chris Kressler. So in other words, the documentary seemed to win it back again through what is a very long and very tedious uh, argument between the two of them, where I think by the end of it, you, you, you find that they actually probably agree on a lot more than they disagree, but they were nitpicking amongst each other. And one of the main criticisms of Chris Kressler was that he couldn't read a forest plot. Now, I don't know whether you can read one or not, but he, that was that was his way of of showing or undermining um, some of what he said, what 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 was what was said against the documentary. But I have to say that that James Wilkes did a very good job of defending himself, and you came away thinking actually maybe the documentary's right. So part of why I wanted you to be on the show was because I want to hear the other side of this and you know get, get some clarity because it feels like. It feels like the strategy at the moment with everything, and it's not just food, is to bombard us with so many conflicting ideas that nobody really knows what to do. Yes, it's true. People, yes, there's a lot of conflicting information. And I mentioned this to you before, but, you know, full disclosure for your audience, I have not seen that movie. Right. Um, I, To me, it's just... Maybe it's kind of like what you have. Uh, having said that, I you know I'd be happy to you know totally answer any you know any questions you know regarding particular points they make. But to me, something like what you said here here's another movie. Uh, there have been quite a few movies about health and about this about eating and about this sort of thing over the last few years. And when it came out, I immediately. I mean, I have had probably literally hundreds of messages on Twitter asking me what I thought about this movie because everybody watched it. Yeah. Um, and to me, it's just another it's not science. It's it's you know, it's a, it's a movie. And and I'm I'm very particular about 
the movies that I watched, so I, okay. I didn't watch it. <laughs> so, so not even out of curiosity, you know, just to, just to poo-poo it, would you? I, you know, I read enough about it that yeah. I knew what it was going to say. So I am, you know, while I try to be uh, open to new evidence, I know I was not particularly interested in what James Cameron had to say about being a vegan. He, he allegedly, you know, from what I've read, he's got a, like a $200 million investment in a company that's making, you know, fake burgers kind of thing. Mm. So, you know, you got it. I got to take that all with a grain of salt. And frankly, you know, the statement that Arnold Schwarzenegger prefers to eat plant-based food, I color me dubious there. I really, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one one could, if one was going to be kind, say that maybe the two hundred million dollar investment was a, a sign of of uh, you know faith in the product and belief in yeah, the product. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, sure, on a, on a benevolent interpretation, yes. Yeah, but okay. So, if we get to the kind of crux of the matter, eating meat, a lot of people would just say we shouldn't be eating meat. Our bodies are not supposed to eat meat. We're not designed to eat meat. Uh, we can't process it. Or the meat that we've got, the animals are not well looked after. They're pumped with hormones. Therefore, we're going to get sick from it. What would you say to, to things like that? Uh, on close examination, all of that completely falls apart. Um, for one thing, human beings for millions of years, it you know, depending on how you want to define a human, but Certainly humans and their immediate ancestors have been eating meat for three million years. And furthermore, the, the modern day hunter gatherers, and there are a few of them left, they are the basically the, you know, the modern day living relics. Of, maybe that's not the right word, but they're the descendants of these of how every human being in the in the world lived over 10,000 years ago before the invention of agriculture. Mm. And they prefer meat as much meat as they can get all the time. They eat plants basically when it's a substitute, when they, when they can't get enough meat, the average was like 65% of their calories came from animal foods. Uh, so based on the fact that human beings have eaten large amounts of meat and that they seem to have preferred to eat nothing but meat unless unless it wasn't available or or unless enough wasn't available you know there is solid evidence that we are designed to eat meat there is physiological evidence for example the the ph of our of our stomach acid is you know leans more towards that of a carnivore than than an herbivore. There are all kinds of indications that meat is the natural diet of humans. As far as, so I, I have, I've said this before. So uh, Jared Diamond, um, you know, once used the idea of uh, 2.4 million years of human evolution and comparing it to the 24 hours of a clock. So if we do that, human beings have been eating meat until approximately eight minutes ago. Right. <laughs> About eight minutes ago, they started eating wheat and other grains. 
that's that's not to say they ate no plant foods whatsoever before agriculture, but it would have been sporadic, more sporadic, seasonal, what they could find, dig up, that sort of thing. So agriculture began eight minutes ago, um, and the era of ultra-processed food began about six seconds ago. So what, why would we blame, um, you know, modern chronic disease or obesity or whatever on meat? It, it doesn't make any sense. I would, I would add, I had my first beyond meat burger earlier this week and there will not be a second. Really? <laughs> okay. I, I have heard that sentiment uh, from others. Have you, have you heard of a book called Catching Fire by Richard Wrangham? Um, I recognize that author's name. Um, uh, it's catching fire. I how, do, don't know that book. How cooking made us human. It's, it's one of the more fascinating things I've read. It basically, if, if I remember the the gist of it, it's that um, the, the 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 real accelerator in our in our ancient past wasn't just eating meat. It was uh, learning how to cook it. Because when you when you when you can cook meat. It makes it much easier to digest, and it basically led, uh, by all accounts, led to an explosion in basically the size of our brains because we had this it, we, it basically meant that we could we, we could use all of that energy so much more efficiently because if you're eating raw meat you're chewing away at it for hours but if you have a nice steak you can eat it you know just like that right there there's also uh, you you know what what you said speaks uh, to the idea and and no doubt he uh, uh he covers that in the book um that human beings have much smaller guts and much larger brains than the primates that yeah. we descended from. So, for example, a gorilla eats a lot of uh, eats vegetation exclusively, yeah. and and they have huge guts, um, and you know, very with very long intestines. And furthermore, they have to spend all day eating mm. to you know to get enough to to you know because they're obviously big and uh so they that that's a characteristic of herbivores generally i was gonna say that, that, that makes them sound more like cows well not not only that they use that in the game changers as a reason to be on a plant-based diet because if you want to be as strong as a gorilla then that, that's what you should eat or as slow as a cow <laughs> there you go works both ways <laughs> okay so we've got we've got a few items we've got i think there's general agreement about processed food there's processed food and i from what i understand processed food is particularly bad because you, you because of the amount of times that it's cooked and bis, biscuit comes from the french of cooked twice um and i always think about that when you have biscuits that they that they're, they're ultra processed uh, you don't really know what's what's in them i suppose you can look but there's probably plenty of chemicals that sort of stuff is not going to be good for you but you can presumably um, also sure be rest assured there's going to be a ton of sugar in them yes exactly so the from what i understand from the research from before was that around the time you were saying that the heart disease rates were going up the industry um knew or had an idea that it might be sugar but it was too profitable so they decided to blame fat. And the, the idea that it's fat now is being, like the lid's been blown off that. It's, people seem to now accept that, you know, the, 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 the fry up, the, the heart attack on a plate that we used to think was awful, which is basically bacon and eggs um, and sausages for breakfast. Um, and black is, pudding. And black pudding, which was completely vilified. And fried toast. If you, if you go back to, you know, if you, if you, for Tim and I, you know, in a, 
who are middle-aged, if you go back to, think back to school, people who are obese, kids who are obese was, was, was virtually unheard of. There wasn't, it wasn't just like a general thing. But it's a general thing now. I mean, you I, mean I, I, I suspect one of the factors, I mean, you, you've, you've highlighted the, ultra pro- the rise of ultra-processed foods, but I, I suspect that another significant factor has to be the fact that everyone's so sedentary now. Yeah. That, you know, people, uh, yeah. Don't, people don't tend to walk or run. They tend to drive or, you know, get Ubers or whatever else. But they're, they're, not, they're not ambulatory. That was exactly what I was going to ask Dennis. Right. So this is, this is a topic that gets hotly debated you know the 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 how much of a factor being sedentary plays in in you know maintaining a lean weight or 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 becoming overweight or you know whatever um uh, for one thing exercise when when they've done actual scientific studies exercise alone is pretty ineffective for losing weight and people are surprised to hear this but but it is true very ineffective. If, if diet, there's a saying, you can't outrun a bad diet. And (laughs) that's certainly true. I mean, if somebody, if, if somebody comes to me and tells me that they want to lose weight, they want to lose body fat. I tell, uh, tell them that diet is 80 to 90% of your battle there. And most people are surprised to hear that because they think they're going to exercise their their weight away. This is another the powers that be, if you want to call them that the big food companies and so on. People just people, corporations in general, let's say, have a have an interest in in this myth that exercise is important for fat loss and in, in, they have an interest in propagating it. And that is because. If you believe that you need to exercise more to to lose weight, or if you believe you're overweight because you don't exercise enough, then you don't blame those foods that those companies are putting out. They the real reason, according to the big food companies, that you're overweight is because you're lazy. It's not because of their food. So that's that's and th- this message is put out and and frankly you know most most mainstream dietitians and and doctors believe this and propagate it too if you go to a doctor and say hey doc i really would like to drop you know 30 pounds or something he'll tell you eat less and move more and it's just guaranteed to fail and of course the no, sorry and of course the media won't be that interested either because these these some of these companies are going to be the, amongst the biggest advertisers absolutely right so anyway starting with that idea that exercise alone is ineffective for fat loss then then you get to a, a larger idea that well if you know when people were working on farms or doing other kinds of manual labor we didn't have all this that this obesity and that is certainly true um, however we didn't have the kind of foods that we eat today for the most part either. So, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult, uh, to, you know, to say as far as these, you know, larger social changes in, in obesity, for example, or chronic disease, how, you know, what, what role plays in what, but, or to what extent, but the fact that exercise alone is not very effective in the face of continual eating of the the kind of food that we have around today tells me that still the food is a lot more important 
than than our than how much uh, energy we expend. Could you talk me through a typical day of what you might eat? Uh, sure. Um, I eat uh, meat or eggs at every meal. Um, every meal. Every meal. Yes. Wow. So, how many eggs do you eat a day? Do you think? Um, eggs, not typically too many. Uh, three, two or three, maybe. Okay. Um, uh, I, I'm not trying to limit myself. It just happens to be, um, on most days I do intermittent fasting. So, um, I don't eat after my evening meal. So let's say I finish it possibly, let's just say six in the evening. And then uh, I don't eat, uh, I get up in the morning, have uh, coffee or tea and that's all. And, and I usually try to go till 10 AM or noon without eating. So if I get to 10 AM, I often succumb by that time of getting hungry, but that's 16 hours without eating. So that's intermittent fasting. And I try to do that most days. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, but other than that, I eat meat or eggs at every meal. I, this morning I went to the gym and had my workout early. And so I only do that a couple of days a week. So I don't fast afterwards when I do that. So I came back and I had a steak. Steak um, for breakfast. Sounds yeah. amazing. And yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Now I, I do something similar except and this is the big except so i do 16 hour fasts and i do short burst workouts but i also have a weakness for the local bakery and they make amazing bagels and i don't buy the uh-huh. processed ones I, they're made on on site so i always thought that that was okay but i find it very hard to eat breakfast like eggs uh, and bacon without some bread now do you eat any bread at all do you, or do you recommend not having any bread? Hard, hardly ever. Uh, mm. You know, if if I go out to a, a restaurant uh, and have a hamburger once every few weeks, maybe, you know, I'll eat the bun. But basically, that is about it. So, no, I don't eat bread. So you you wouldn't typically eat sandwiches then? No, I don't. No. So that so that sounds like the uh, so you'd eat cheese, I'm guessing, but would you also eat fruit? I don't eat much. We have a, a grapefruit tree in our backyard, so I've been eating some grapefruit lately. But really, that's about it. Uh, a few berries once in a while, uh, blueberries, raspberries. So, that, so that's about it. So if I'm getting this right, you're basically saying you could could I? Okay, so let's say I from now on I just say eggs and meat, and let's say. Would that have to be like um, grass-fed? Would I have to make sure it was grass-fed, or could it just be wagyu, wagyu steak? No, you you do not you do not have to do that. This is a this is a very common misconception. Um, Another one that's amazing. Yes, um, you know, depending on what what you're eating in particular. Or what you're eating habitually, but for example, the the biggest in let's say okay, we're talking about grass-fed beef. So the biggest health claim of grass-fed as opposed to grain-fed, if you want to call it a health claim, but this is what people talk about, is mm. the 
fatty acid ratio of omega-6 and omega-3 fats. So you know, generally speaking, in our modern age, omega-6 are bad for you because we just get them, we just get crazy high amounts of them. And omega-3 are good, and typically we don't get enough of them. So grain-fed has a better ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids than does grain-fed. The thing is, is that beef in general contains very little of either. And if you eat, for example, chicken, chicken has massively more uh, omega-6 fats in it than either kind of beef. And if you eat any kind of fatty fish, like, say, salmon, it has massively more amounts of omega-3 than either kind of beef. So my point being, if you were, if you had plenty of money to spend and you were, you know, like on the high road to do whatever it takes to be healthy and you were eating nothing but beef at virtually every meal, then go ahead and eat grass fed. That will provide a marginal advantage. But for everybody else, there's, there's just, it just doesn't make much difference at all. There's been a lot of talk in our press, and I'm not sure whether this has come from America or made its way to America about the way that meat is preserved and the big demon at the moment and the link as a carcinogen is nitrates. Now, it took me a long time to find bacon that didn't have nitrates in it from my local store. Do you have any view on that at all, whether nitrates are something to be avoided? Or I, I have the view that they are not to be avoided. Uh, uh, certain vegetables contain um, high amounts of nitrates, and we're always commended to eat them because they're supposedly healthy. Um, apparently, um, you know, when certain foods get in contact with saliva, that this can generate nitrates and nit nitrites, um, there are even some indications I would have to go, you know, find this study because I, you know, not, you know, not off the top of my head, but there are even some indications that they can be healthy, wow. that they improve, that they improve health. I mean, that according to the way this has been, I mean, you've seen it as well, haven't you, Tim, over here about nitrates? Pass. Pass, you haven't, you haven't seen it. I mean, it, the way, the way the press has been talking about nitrates, it's virtually like, um, you may as well smoke a cigarette if you're going to eat bacon or anything that's been preserved in nitrates. It's it's, it's just nonsense. They just said it's cancer. It's, I mean, the, the stuff that you the stuff that you read in the mainstream press along those lines, it's just most of it is just hard, you know, hardly to be believed. But this is this is more than that. This was this is. I think I'm sure this was government guidelines. I'd have to I'd have to check. But it it went stronger you, than than you. Just, you can't believe what's coming from them either. No, I don't. And this I, this honestly, is the problem. Like you know, like we say, you know, when it comes to information, we're drowning in 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 information, starved of knowledge, and it's it's like trying to trying to do the right things, especially when you've got kids. I mean, there's there's one thing when it's when it's yourself, and of course, we all want to live longer. We all want to be healthier, um, but it, but it's sort of taking the responsibility for other people and other people's lives. Sure, um, is is one that I don't take lightly, and I'm I've I've been trying to kind of encourage my children, you know, to have eggs for breakfast and not have cereal. Um, but and and I I think I'm doing the right thing, and then you see a documentary like What the Health, and it scares you beyond belief. It's it's like it's just awful, but then. 
for them to say that there's a direct link between nitrates and cancer, you know, and how could I feed bacon to my children knowing that that's what's in it? So when, this, when this is what we're being told, this this leads to to something that actually is is quite quite an important topic and this whole debate about meat um, versus other ways of eating. And that is like what you said about this uh, bacon being linked to cancer. So what does it mean to be linked? It means it's an association. So. Typically, uh, it's just like I, I mentioned when, when I was talking about alcohol. They, they, they look at a bunch of people. They find out, uh, in this case, how much bacon have you been eating? Then they follow them for a few years and see who dies. That, that's basically that's the gist of all of these studies. And so there are just some huge, huge flaws in, in these studies. For example, let's say you take it all at face value that they accurately found out how much bacon these people were eating and uh, they accurately determined uh, everything else, cause of death, uh, so on and so forth. The, in, the, the increased numbers they find are minuscule. In fact, they're so low, they are not even worth looking at. Like, like Professor uh, Ioannidis says, most published research findings are false. <laughs> they, they, y- yes. And, and so, you know, you find things like, um, okay, we did this study and we looked at these people who ate bacon and found that they had a thir- you know, uh, let's say 13%, that, that's a number I seem to recall, a 13% increased rate of colon cancer. W- what does that mean? Even if you took it at face value, which I don't, the, the rate of colon cancer, lifetime rate of colon cancer is something like 4%. In other words, you're, that, that's, you, know, you live a reasonably long life, you've got 4% odds of getting colon cancer. So the 13% increase comes on top of that. So in other words, you now have a 4.13% or whatever, whatever that comes, uh, mm. 4.5% lifetime risk of colon cancer if you ate bacon every day, according to this study, it's garbage. It's, it's not in, in epi- when they, when they discovered that cigarettes cause lung cancer, they discovered this because heavy smokers had something like 25 times higher risk of getting lung cancer as non-smokers. Now that is a risk factor. And, and, you know, even the moderate smokers were, you, you know, like under a pack a day, were getting 15 times as much or something like that. When you find numbers like that, you can believe what, what you are, you know, what the numbers are telling you. When you see that uh, there's a 13% increase in the rate of colon cancer, it's totally flawed. You cannot believe it. it the, the most famous epidemiologist of, of uh, modern times, um, Austin Bishop, uh, I'm not getting his name right. He wrote a famous article and he discusses all this about uh, how you cannot trust data that that if you if the increase in risk is less than two, in other words, less than double, the, the data is just too noisy to to believe anything. You have mm-hmm. to have a, more than a double of risk to take it seriously. Now, furthermore, these studies, a lot of these are done on dietary recall. I mean, can you remember how much bacon you ate two years ago? I mean, some of them are that bad. Wow. That, and, and these problems and these problems are then exacerbated by the fact that the press is, is, is equally awful at knowing how to 
how to convey the statistics, and they've got a vested interest in scaring people anyway. So, you know, you just it's a magnify. It's like garbage in, garbage out. Right. And then there, you know, and then so maybe one of the biggest things is what's known as healthy user bias. And that is that over the past, you know, like, for example, with bacon, we've heard this kind of thing really for a long time or meat in general. You cut the saturated fat, don't eat very much. So for, uh, you know, the last 40 years. So health conscious people have been following this advice. And um, this is the same the same thing you find in studies of vegetarians. They, they've been following this advice and people who don't care about their health have not been following it. So they've been eating more meat and health conscious people also smoke less. They exercise more. They're less likely to drink to excess. They're less likely to be overweight or obese. They're more likely to make more money, all this stuff. And, and to say, Oh, it's because they ate bacon. It's, it's, it's preposterous nonsense. But to have a very polarized diet, if I can put it that way, so you're just eating meat, would that include fish, by the way? And dairy? Sure, yes. Yeah? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And, you know, that after a couple of years of doing that, you'd be able to recall very clearly what, what you'd had because it, it's, it's, a, it's a very polarized diet. You know, it's, you, you know what you're not taking, not so much what you are. I also know people when the Atkins diet was very popular, um, who, who decided to take it on board. Now I have to say I didn't, but, but they did, but it was, it was unsustainable because they found themselves wanting to eat bread or, you know, wanting to eat pizza. And it was ultimately for what of a want of a better word, they could just couldn't stick at it. Is it, is it possible for, for us to do something like that? Where, I mean, clearly you've been able to do it, but is it possible for people generally to be able to stick to a inverted commons diet like this uh, because yeah, of the cravings yeah. for other food. Sure, it is. Uh, I don't have cravings for other food and lots of other people don't either. To my mind, saying that something is unsustainable is just a generalized way of saying I don't want to do it. You know, if, if you want to do it, you do it. I mean, it's like, I don't know, like anything else, going right. to the gym. Yeah. Oh, going to the gym twice a week, that's not sustainable. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, because I don't want to do it. But but it was I, I get that I get I get that, and you know I, I think the thing with exercise when people get into a routine of exercise and they feel how good you feel about it, that makes you want to do more. What I meant was that I I'm a kind of proponent of what you tend to like, what tastes good, and what you tend to crave for over time is probably good for you, and and that doesn't mean McDonald's and and you know sugary drinks because. <clears throat> I think if you fast, it resets your your taste buds and you can kind of realize that some of the things that you might have thought taste really good, actually on reflection, don't taste as good as you, you really thought originally. You know, biscuits and sweets don't taste quite as good when you've had a fast. You know, you, your your sense of taste becomes far more attuned. Right. So I'm, I'm far more attuned to the sort of, the, the, the kind of over-sweetness of certain things through fasting and reject them all. Whereas before I would just, you know, I, for some reason there's, there seemed to be an ability to, to just eat more of it without realizing what damage I'm doing. But when it comes to bread, I've found it very hard to let that go. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm able to work out. I'm quite disciplined about that regularly. And I used to work out, you know, over two or three hours a day. 
when I was younger. And I'm not even saying that that's the right way to do it, but I, I was motivated to do that. And if I thought genu you know, genuinely that eating no bread at all would be good for me, then I would give it a go. But I, I, I just always felt that because we've had bread for a long time, organic bread that is not, inverted commas, full of chemicals, you know, it's stuff that's, that's been made locally and is fresh and goes off very quickly, not like a McDonald's bun that you could probably keep for a month. I always thought that that, that should be okay because if you look at other diets around the world that haven't been spoilt by big corporations, my wife is Slovakian, and there's a predominance of you know, hearty food that can keep you going through a winter. You know, it's all well and good us sitting in, in a, you know, you know, going to work and sitting at a desk. But when you're, you come from a, a, a background where you've got to eat to survive and it go, it takes you back maybe 20 or 30 years or maybe more things may have been here. Um, you know, you look at their diets and you think, well, that's not been developed by a corporation that's been developed by people needing to survive and they would eat dumplings um you know bread-based food as well as meat of course but there seemed to be a balance between the two and this, so the point i'm making is that if we look at the different diets around the world that haven't been interfered with by big corporations there is a balance between the two and just going into predominantly meat seems extreme if i'm honest with you Sure. So um, I think there, there, there are se uh, several things I could say to that. One is that as far as what human beings have eaten around the world over the last 10,000 years, it's, there are constraints on it. People, people have eaten, you know, for the most part, right, to survive. It's, uh, and of course, they, they like their food tasty too. Uh, but if we, you know, if we look at the, at the big picture uh, of most people in most places over the last 10,000 years, they were probably eating some, I would think, not very tasty food. If we're talking about crusts of bread or gruel or something like that. And it's because they had to. Right. Um, so what I say, what I like to look at is what is optimal. Um, and as far as now, I, I don't know very, I, I know very little about you personally, um, other than what you've just told me. But, uh, you know, a lot of people have, you know, come to me, my, my, to cut to the chase, my standard answer when somebody says, well, you know, can I eat carbohydrates? I say, you know, if you're lean and healthy and you exercise regularly, go ahead. That that's not going to hurt you. But you see, if you're not any one of those, I recommend against most, you know, most carbohydrates, re refined grains, those bagels, for example, um, or, you know, or anything with sugar in it. So as far as sustainability goes, it also depends on someone's motivations. If someone were very overweight and diabetic, they may be a lot more motivated to change. Whereas if you, you know, if you're relatively lean, you exercise, you feel good, no, no health problems, you know, well, is a bagel going to kill you? Obviously not. So, you know, it, for me personally, I choose not to eat that stuff most of the time because I don't believe it's optimal. I believe that, uh, you know, a lot, lots of refined carbs and sugar are going to, um, even if you're healthy, they're going to spike your blood glucose. And, you know, that is not optimal when that happens. As, and, and then, 
getting back to what people eat or have eaten around the world, typically like the Slovakians or anybody, you know, I always, uh, I, I always hear the counter argument. Oh, well, they ate all this rice in Japan. Yes. And, I was you know, ask they, Thank you. For right. And they, yeah. they were always lean. Well, yeah, they ate all this rice, number one, because they had to. And number two, they eat about half as much rice now as they did 50 years ago. And they're a lot healthier now. Their, their incidence of stroke, that, that has been a major problem in Japan, and it's gone way down. Heart disease has gone down and, and so on. So as far as the, the particular aspect of they ate all this rice and they were lean, well, there, was a, there were a lot of other things going on. What else did they eat? They, they did eat a lot of other things. I mean, there's a guy who did a uh, documentary in modern Japan just a year ago or something, and he was documenting just how much meat and animal foods they're eating, and it's a lot. But back when they were you know, eating predominantly rice, you know, what else were they eating? What kind of conditions did they live in? How hard were they working? What diseases did they have? I, you know, I don't think you can point to any one single thing and, and say, oh, well, they were eating rice, therefore they were lean. That's interesting. Because, I mean, if we look at, say, um, the Italian diet, which is very much pasta and pizza, but also meat and fish and eggs and, and, and other things, but predominantly pasta... Uh, and it's not just that it's the conditioning that if you wanted to if you want to do say a marathon what you'd eat before you'd carb load the night before that's that's the advice you normally get told you know you eat a load of pasta because your body's got to convert it quickly into energy and you can't do that with fat but you can with carbohydrates it, for for the italians to have such a high carb diet you know as a nation and this is before the fast food chains uh, got into the picture. This is there are areas in in Italy that that just don't have any of them at all. You wouldn't wouldn't see a Pizza Hut or, you know, a McDonald's. You know, there's no way that they they'd eat that stuff. But yet they will still eat pasta and pizza, as well as meat. And I think the Italians in certain areas have a very what's what's been lauded as quite a quite a healthy diet and have quite a, quite a relatively healthy diet. Does it suggest that? that they would be even healthier if they dropped pasta and pizza? Um, yeah, good question. So for one thing, I think that it is quite, I think it's an assumption to, to say that Italians are eating loads of pasta all the time. Now, I have, I have been there, but I'm not you know, int intimately familiar with what's going on from day to day. Uh, another thing is servings of pasta are typically a lot smaller than they are in the United States. It's true. Um, we 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 really overdo it in this country as far as serving size of anything my understanding is and and my experience too when i was there is that pasta is a small dish eaten before the main meal and of course they do eat bread but they eat a lot of other things they eat meat and fish furthermore the north of italy is known for, uh, again, this is my understanding, not eating that much pasta. And and they're no, known for meat dishes and so on. Mm. And the other thing is in the South, where they're much more known for eating pasta and, and, and bread and so on, has a higher rate of obesity. So, and, and in fact, even when Ansel Keys was going over to the Mediterranean to do his studies and he, you know, he arrived in uh, Naples, and apparently they had, even then, which was like the 1950s, they had quite an obesity problem then. 
So I, you know, there's a, there's a lot, I, I'm certainly not saying that your idea is wrong, but just to say that, oh, Italians eat a lot of pasta and they're all reasonably healthy. Therefore it's all good. It's, it's, it's a much more complicated than that. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's a, such a fascinating subject. I mean, it's, I'll give you an example. I used to go to, I used to go to Poland on business and I started going there in 2004. And when I first went out there, what I discovered was some very healthy people, very, very thin, very, you know, in shape compared to the UK and certainly compared to America. And what I also saw was there weren't any fast food joints or not many. Uh-huh. Um, and, it, and this was in Warsaw. So over the years, traveling and, and seeing the change and seeing the buildings going up and the, you know, the, the, the cranes turning and, and the, and the, you know, fast forward sort of 10, 15 years, you, you see there's fast food joints all over the place, but you also see much fatter people on the street. Just, yeah. And, and so my association with what, what is wrong is it's not just, I always thought it wasn't just the type of food or, you know, the, the category of food, whether it's meat or, or, or carbohydrates, it was the quality of it. Like if you, if you were eating burgers every day, that's, that's not good meat and that's not good carbohydrate. But if you ate a steak and you ate some homemade bread, some sourdough bread or something like that, then you were, you, you were getting much better quality. And that's why I looked to some of these societies before they were infiltrated by big business because prior to that, humans would adopt the optimal strategy for survival. Right. So, you know, this, this is, this is, yes, this is, um, an important aspect. So this brings me back to the ultra processed foods, which certainly fast foods, you know, from fast food restaurants are, and, and basically all, almost everything that's in the middle aisles of the supermarket are ultra processed too. In the United States, they eat about 60% of calories or more from these foods. So in the case of, we were talking just before about carbs and, and, and so on, um, you know, and like, for example, the Italians, does that make them unhealthy and so on? But it is, it is definitely more complicated than that. And the particular kind of carbs may matter. For one thing, there's sugar. So 200 years ago, the per capita consumption of sugar in, in uh, the United States was something like five pounds a year. And it's now well over 100 pounds. And it's been increasing linearly the whole time. So a lot of people point to sugar as having a special role in the obesity epidemic. And the other thing is the seed oils that I mentioned before, vegetable oils, which the common ones are soybean, corn oil, canola oil. Soybean oil is ubiquitous in the global food supply. It's, uh, it's in, it's in that, that fast food, it's in the ultra processed foods and it, it can be highly suspected that it plays a role in obesity. There are good physiological reasons to, to believe this. And there are very good physiological reasons to believe that they cause all manner of ill health. People eat massive amounts of the of soybean oil without even knowing it, just because it's put into everything. In in the case of, you know, your your story about going to Poland, you know, there you go. I mean, it could be something like that. 
There's also a, a slightly overlapping issue, which is known, in, you know, technically as hyperpalatability. So you've got, uh, you've got it in basic terms, just means it's very tasty and you can't resist eating it. So these big food companies like Nestle and uh, Coca-Cola, they, they employ armies of food scientists to make sure that their products are the tastiest things and, and most irresistible things you can possibly imagine that you become almost literally addicted to them mm. that so that you're just buying their product forever. And these, these people are, they are smart scientists and engineers and they can make foods in such a way that people have a hard time resisting them. You, you know, it, it, there in the United States, there was uh, an advertising slogan, bet you can't eat just one referring to, to, uh, I think potato chips or something. Or when you, pass, you can't stop, right? Right, right. Exactly. That they're, they're, they're just, and, and it doesn't, you know, really, it doesn't even have to be these engineered products. I mean, any combination of fat and sugar is just incredibly tasty. That's what desserts are. And that's what candy is. Um, that's what pastries are. They, they, I mean, once in a while on a holiday around here, I'll have a piece of homemade cheesecake and I, and I, I, I can't believe how good it tastes. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, you know, you get these dopamine hits yes. that, you know, that, it, you know, and this is what in effect, most people are, are eating on a daily basis. A lot of that stuff, you can't, you can't resist it. It's high in calories and you know, does, does things to your insulin and so on. And it makes people obese. Yeah. That's, that's just incredible. Obviously I'm going to put links to your, your Twitter handle and your website. Tell us a bit about what people might find at roguehealthandfitness.com. Um, okay. Well, that's my website and I've written quite a few articles for it. Um, and over the years, um, couple hundred, maybe more than that. So there's a lot there. And uh, lately, I've moved more of my activity towards Twitter. So mm. I think they can um, probably get a better handle on my current thinking if they if they visit me at Twitter. My handle is Mangan150. But I, on your pinned tweet right at the top, you say, you can get lean and ripped in one hour a week or less if you know how. Totally unnecessary uh -huh. to spend more time than that. Find out how, which I think, I think a lot of people would be very interested in how to do that. So you're basically saying less can be more. And what I was interested in, in is, you know, Dr. Michael Mosley, who I mentioned at the top of the show, he showed that you, you can get fit just by doing very high intensity short bursts of exercise and yes. I, is that kind of part of what that might be about it it is very related yes yeah. uh, although in in my case we're talking about resistance training yeah uh, aka weightlifting um and this is this is another uh <laughs> this is another thing that you know that's that's basically bad information that's gotten out over the last 40 years that we've always been told there's something unique and health giving about aerobic exercise and that, that you have to exercise at a certain level, uh, to be healthy. And that is, uh, I guess, you know, for reasons that would probably take me a long time to go into wrong, but, but as it concerns resistance training and building muscle, uh, the, you know, the same 
principle of high intensity applies that if you if you apply the right intensity you can build muscle with very brief and infrequent workouts you do not need to spend hours a week in the gym a lot of a lot of the internet bros really hate hearing that but it, it is true as a friend of mine says the biggest mistake most people make when it comes to training to build muscle is they work out too long, they work out too often, but when they work out, they don't work out hard enough. Right. Funny. That, that, that's my philosophy too. Amazing. Amazing. You've been so generous with your time and your knowledge. It's, uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. I just want to ask what, some closing questions, if, if I may. Sure. Joe Rogan and his podcast, if you got invited on there to talk the other side against James Wilkes, would you go on there? Well, I, I would certainly have to do my homework by, <laughs> you know, watching the movie and, yeah. and, and so on. But uh, I don't see why not. It would be outside of my comfort zone for sure. But really, uh, what, yeah, I don't see why not. What, why, would, why would that be? Well, he's just Joe Rogan is huge. Yeah, I mean, but but he's, he's on your he's on your side with what what he says and what you say are, are aligned. Um, I mean, but what what we like right. about what I like about Joe Rogan is he's he comes across as a guy who who like us we're just trying to find the facts here. You know, we're just yeah. trying to we're just trying to work out what we what are we being told? What can we see? What can we kind of deduce for ourselves? And this is something a message that I would leave for everybody. You know, we're not. You know, you've got to find it out yourself. You can't just listen to one person and say, this is right. You've got to work it out for yourself, no matter what it is. Um, but he seems to have that attitude and he loves eating yes. meat. And I think he was, I genuinely think my take from from what, uh, from what the debate was that whilst he had to acknowledge that James Wilkes had done a fantastic job, I think he was disappointed that the the other side of the argument wasn't put forward as strongly as it could have been. And when someone like me is trying to find the truth, it's I'm just very grateful that you've you've come on to to clear things up for me. Yes, uh, I I agree about Joe Rogan. Uh, he did the carnivore diet for January and lost 12 pounds, and he was already relatively lean. Um, so, yeah, and and but but he he is huge. And by the way, another reason I admire Joe Rogan is because he's self-made. And mm. I mean, he, he's making, he has a huge audience and he's making a, a, tr a, a lot of money from that podcast and he's doing it himself without a network, without anybody. Yes. So I, I really admire that. Me too. I think it's absolutely amazing. But yes, you know, you, you do have to, for, for things that concern you the most, for example, in health, you, you've got to find out for yourself. Um, if there's anything I've learned in my odyssey over the years is that you, you just can't believe what you hear. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, you, you, you just can't, if you really want to know the truth that you're going to have to dig deeper. Yes. And it's, um, trust no one, but the truth is out there. Yes. It is out there in some form or other. Yes. Brilliant. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been an absolute pleasure I would just recommend anyone listening here, please go to his website and follow him on Twitter. It's a fascinating journey and it, you've just, it's great to get and hear something that is so unbiased and 
has come. I'm surprised. I'm genuinely very shocked to hear that you were vegan before. And, you know, that that makes everything you say that more poignant. I have to ask one final question. I'm sorry about this, but I've just realized that I should really ask. I know it's a difficult one in this current environment, but I need to ask about your opinion on the coronavirus. I know it's so difficult to answer anything um, kind of, you know, given that we none of us have really got any information. But what, what's your take on it? I know people have asked you on Twitter, but what's your take right. on, on the virus? Right. Well, f- first of all, I should say I even I I have been a microbiologist in my career, but I don't have any <clears throat> any special expertise on on the coronavirus. Um, I I do know about some pandemics and viruses in general. Um, so, you know, I am, I am reading about it and I'm trying to make sense of it much like anyone else. Um, one thing that people seem to be overlooking or may, may be overlooking is that a large number of cases might not be counted, um, simply because if someone has a mild illness, they just stay at home and do not seek medical attention. Um, and so these fatality rates that we hear about, if, if this is the case, the fatality rates could be a lot lower Mm. simply because there's a much larger base of people that we don't know about that have the disease or the illness. Um, that, that is what I think I would, uh, I, I'll be happy to be proven wrong if there's better data, but, uh, you know, actual testing, for coronavirus laboratory testing is just getting going. Um, I, it's my understanding that most people have not been tested. And certainly if somebody stays at home and never goes to, to seek medical attention, they won't be tested. Um, so that the, the, the fatality rate is of most importance that, that we know now. And, uh, even with a even with a low fatality rate, it seems like it's going to infect a lot of people. Um, so even with a low fatality rate, well, I'm not sure what that means. It it it, it won't be good. Um, so that those are my thoughts on it. Not an expert opinion, but that that that's the those are the conclusions I've come to so far. Yeah. So it's it's really just the reaction to it, which will be. Um, in Italy at the moment, they're talking about closing schools. I guess that right. could be that could be mirrored across Europe, um, possibly further. And in, until the the life cycle of the flu would normally be, I guess, a, a, a few months, and then it, as we move into the summer, it should then naturally, uh, you know, reduce. But I, I I don't know. I'm not. I I guess like many people, we we, we don't really follow what happens um, that closely until something like this happens, and then there's just like a million questions. Right there, there's there's uh, some evidence that vitamin D and sunshine are are a, have a treatment effect against influenza. So there, there was, there's an interesting article that looked at the 1918 and 19 flu pandemic in the United States, and they found that the lowest case fatality rates were in San Antonio, Texas, which also happened to be the city with the highest amount of solar radiation. And the highest case fatality rates were in New London, Connecticut, which 
also happened to be the city with the lowest amount of solar wow. radiation. And basically, there was a linear a linear association between those two in all the other cities that they looked at. There is a theory that, well, it is a fact that in the summer, flu cases are almost non-existent. It all happens in the winter. So why is that? Some people think it's because people have higher levels of vitamin D because the sun is shining. That That's not... Um, that's not the only possible reason, but you know, there that you go. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is one. That's I'd never thought of it like that. I always thought it had to do with the cold, and and you know, they they say that in in the cold people are huddling together and uh, more. But I guess that's that's not right, though, is it? Because of course, it's not yeah, right. It can't be. You right. Just think of like in, yeah. in London, people are taking the tube just as much in the summer as they are in the winter. Fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank yeah. you. Thank you once again. I mean, it's just been absolutely amazing. Thank you for coming on the show. And and I wish you all the very best with your with your endeavors. It's been brilliant. Well, thank you so much. The, the pleasure has been mine. Uh, I thank you for having me on. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, Dennis. Take care. Okay. Enjoy your day. All right. You, you too. Bye now. Bye now. Bye-bye. And thank you so much for listening. And we'll catch you next time. Please remember that everybody's different when it comes to medical matters. What works for one person may not work for another. And the idea of this is just to have a discussion. It's not to provide medical advice to anybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.